0: Perfectly good, warm relationships will wither away and die of neglect if we don't connect, if we don't reach out, if we don't see each other, if we don't call each other, right? And so suddenly people will turn around, you know, in their 30s or 40s and say, I don't have any friends. I've fallen out of touch with my college friends, with my school friends, whatever. And so what we find is that the people who are better at maintaining these connections and making new ones are the people who really thrive.
1: So what if the key to living a good life is actually closer than we all realize? I mean, whether you're a longtime listener of the podcast, or this is your first time tuning in, I bet some part of you is searching for the answers to living a good life, a meaningful life. You probably wondered what the keys to happiness or good health or fortune are. And in our last episode, I shared a simple model for a really good life that I call the good life buckets. If you haven't listened, by the way, be sure to tee that up right after this. Now, one of the three good life buckets that I spoke about is what I call the connection bucket. It's all about the depth and quality of our relationships and the effect they have on our ability to live good lives. And today we're diving even deeper into the role that relationships and people play in our ability to feel human, to feel alive, and to flourish in all parts of life with a very special guest, someone who is passionate about uncovering and sharing the keys to living a good life, Dr. Robert Waldinger. He is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation a practicing psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and director of the psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. And he's also a longtime practitioner and teacher of Zen, teaches all over New England and in fact, around the world. But he's also the director of something called the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is often shorthanded as the grant study. This is, from my knowledge, the longest running study on human flourishing ever conducted, now spanning something like over 80 years. The insights that have come out of it are profound and also, for many, really surprising, especially in the context of the importance of relationships on our ability to be happy no matter what else comes our way, from health to good or bad fortune to money or lack thereof. So, Bob is also the co author of a fantastic new book, The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. And I'm just super excited to dive deeper today into some of the insights shared in the book. In this conversation, We talk about some myths about happiness and living a good life that so many of us cling to, what the data actually says matters and what doesn't, and how to invest more effectively in the pursuit of happiness and the best life possible. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlife project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlife project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Deeply fascinating. I mean, obviously, the name of this podcast is Good Life Project. So I have been fascinated with this question of, what does it mean to live a good life? Mm-hmm. Um, for really my entire adult life and looking at a lot of the academic insights that have sort of been derived from this, looking at a lot of spiritual traditions of, of which I know you have backgrounds in both, which I'm, I'm really curious about. It's interesting when I saw the world of, you know, when, when Marty Seligman stands in front of the APA a couple of decades ago now and says, you know, we have a, a cake that's half baked and, and sort of introduces the notion of positive psychology now you see all of this research out there and having you know a bit of background in buddhism and eastern philosophy and tradition i kind of giggle because what i see happening is the world of science coming around to say like we are officially anointing thousands of years old wisdom as real
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly
1: i wonder with your background cuz you have this dual background like what's your take on all this
0: so i used to think that my zen background and my my spiritual practice now was separate from my research and separate still from my clinical practice as a psychiatrist. I do psychotherapy. And I used to think they were in silos and I needed to keep them in silos. And and of course, they're not siloed at all. And if I were a decent Zen practitioner, I would have known that from the beginning. But the idea that, you know, these are all experiences of the same human condition, the same human life, right? Whether we come at it through... Spiritual traditions or empirical research, or you know, psychiatry and psychotherapy, it's all looking at the human experience. And I've gotten more and more convinced of that as I delve more deeply into each of these areas of my life.
1: Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, it's almost like the deeper you go down any one vein, it just all starts to bleed into a single unified channel. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, I always thought that there is value in being able to speak the language of whoever you're in conversation with to share, like, you know, there's some central tenet and to be able to sort of like convey it in a way to someone where you have, you have, a, you know, like your finger on the pulse of how it might actually land as real and valuable with them to be able to sort of like speak the dialect of the different, you know, of academic science, and you know, the clinical practice of spiritual practice. That's got to be like, feel like a, a bit of a power tool for you.
0: Well. It is a bit of a power tool in that what I can do, for example, some of the the things that I know to be true from my spiritual practice, from Zen, when there's science behind it, I can talk to scientists and say, we've got data about this. This is not just my opinion. This is not just the Buddha's idea. There's real hard science here. And similarly, I can talk with my spiritual friends and i can talk the language of zen the the language uh, that isn't limited by the sort of narrow cognitive empirical track that my research is on i actually love being able to move with some freedom you know between these worlds
1: yeah it's almost like there's a a, a code switching capacity yeah you know, which lets you just like not only function but actually be persuasive and compelling and share things that you might feel are important and worthy of being shared while at the same time you're doing the translation internally but you're eliminating that step for others and so maybe it'll land a little hopefully. bit more readily <laughs>
0: hopefully i mean it's interesting k the reason you know I gave a TED talk seven years ago that went viral and I was really scared to give that talk Mm. because at that point, you know, academics really didn't do that. I thought my colleagues would think I was, you know, not serious. And I also thought I was stating something obvious, which was the centrality of human connection in our well-being. And then when it went viral, it was sort of a confirmation that this is what I need to do. I need to start bringing this out to the world. And so a lot of well, you know, the reason why we wrote the book and the reason why I get to talk to you now is because I need to cross these bridges. I need to wed these different domains and I need to bring this stuff that we know out to people who don't read academic journals and shouldn't read academic journals.
1: <laughs> to, yes, to the... uh I- my dad was actually a, um, a researcher for his entire career. He yeah, really, yeah, he, he taught psychology and, uh, but he really, he, he rarely, he wasn't in the classroom a lot. He actually ran his own lab on human cognition for, I don't know, 45, 50 years. You know, it was always interesting because, you know, we would have conversations over time. Of how many people, and you know, he published, you know, like a, a ton and spoke a ton and, but the number of people that would read any particular publication was always like you could like count sometimes you're like with on your fingers. In exactly,
0: terms. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, and we work so hard on these papers that we publish and we're so proud of them. And I just, you know, I realized that particularly the, the research I've done, you know, we have spent millions of dollars of taxpayer money, right? You know, from NIH and really, thank goodness they funded us because it's the only study like it. But if we don't bring that out to the world, what are we doing? Mm. Um, And lots of, as you know, lots of science is left hiding in academic journals. And so my passion right now is to see if I can be part of an effort to bring what we know into a public sphere where people can really make use of it. And I love that.
1: So I had been exposed to... um through this massive longitudinal study for a a while. Let's sort of like lay down a little bit of like, when you talk about this study that you've been involved in, and this has been a study that has gone on since, I guess, the late thirties and been kind of handed off and handed off and handed off. Take me into the origin of this, how it came to be, what was the intention in the
0: beginning and who was in it? Like when this kicks off at 38, initially it was two studies and they didn't know about each other. One study was started at the Harvard University Student Health Service with Harvard undergrads. So it was 19-year-olds, sophomores, chosen by their deans as fine, upstanding young men. And it was a study funded by Mr. W.T. Grant, who owned the chain of department stores. And he wanted to find out which young men would make good department store managers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he funded a study of healthy development. So of course, you know if you want to study healthy development, you study all white men from Harvard, right? It's like so politically incorrect to do now. But at that time, they wanted to study, as they said, what goes right with human growth and development, not what goes wrong, because most of what we do is study what goes wrong. So that was one study. And then the other study was at Harvard Law School by a law school professor, Sheldon Gluck, and his wife, Eleanor Gluck, who was a social worker. They were interested in how some children from really not just disadvantaged background, but troubled families, how those kids stayed on good developmental paths and didn't get into trouble. Like, how is that possible? And so they wanted to find the factors that allowed some kids to do all right you know even though they were born with two strikes against them and so eventually those studies got combined by my predecessor in the 1970s so we had this really privileged group and this really underprivileged group and when i came on 20 years ago we brought in women the wives first and then we reached out to the kids who are mostly baby boomers and more than half of whom are women so that's how we put together this big unwieldy 85-year project of ours.
1: So it starts out as these two different studies, um, blends into one. And then over the years, sounds like every generation or so, like you're basically folding in new generations and also expanding beyond the original sort of like like male identifying only.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's what, you know, what we haven't been able to do is bring in more diverse populations. So our Mm. diversity was first socioeconomic. And right. also about half of the families of the inner city people were immigrants. So diversity there, but everybody was white because in 1938, the city of Boston was 97.4% white. Mm. What we don't do, and we would love to do is bring in more diverse samples to look more like America right now. The reason we don't is that we have this treasure trove of data about each person's life across the years. And we can't find new people and have those data, right? So our hope is that, well, we know other researchers are starting studies to follow people over time, studies with people of color, people of very different ethnic backgrounds, because that needs to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be fascinating, right? And and now- if those are all starting somewhere around now, plus or minus five years, right? We're talking about another eighty years before we have equivalent data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so on the one hand, I'm thinking it'll be fascinating to see like the contrast and to see the, the similarities and the differences. And the other hand, you know, uh, I'm it's going to be a while.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I know. But what I will say is that what we've done, uh, for example, in the book, we only have reported findings that other studies also report so Mm -hmm. they're not 80 year studies but what we do is we look at other studies of different more diverse populations and if every study is pointing in the same direction then we can have confidence that what we found isn't by chance right because no single study can prove anything particularly when we talk about adult development Uh, So we, we need to be sure that what we found is corroborated by other studies.
1: Right. So by looking at the earlier data from these other studies, you're able to sort of say like, what are the patterns? What are the, uh, the, the data points, the revelations that seem to be fairly universal across all the different, you know, like people, all the different populations. And that lets you have like a higher level of confidence saying, we feel pretty good saying that like, this probably applies to a wide range of people. Exactly. Exactly. Tell me what was measured and how oh. this was measured, because oh my gosh, I've heard different stories yeah. and, and I've read, but the volume and the way that the measurement took place just seems like it's almost
0: beyond comprehension. Well, it is. It is a little beyond comprehension. Um, so what they started out interviewing all these young men, so they'd have an interview with a medical doctor and then a medical exam and an interview with a psychiatrist. And then they'd go to their homes and talk to their parents and take elaborate notes about what was being served for dinner and the parents' disciplinary stuff, so all that stuff. But then they would also like measure your tolerance for pain. They'd stick a needle in your earlobe and and measure. I know. Like, why? Why would you do that? Well, they did that. I don't know why. They did elaborate measurements of their body habitus and their skulls because in the 1930s, They believed that the shape of your body and the shape of your skull had something to do with your intelligence and your personality. This was a time that was an unhappy time in our history when these ideas about eugenics were kind of at play. And so we have have some measurements that we don't know what to do with. We have all these body habitus measurements that we we don't know what to do with that. Um, But then we started audiotaping people and then videotaping people, and then measuring their cardiovascular reactions. We'd stress them out and measure how quickly they calmed down after a stressor. We drew blood for DNA. I mean, this was in the early 2000s. In 1938, people hadn't even dreamed of DNA. And so what we've become is kind of a history of adult developmental research. By incorporating new measures, we put people into MRI scanners and show them happy images and sad images and see where their brains light up. I mean, all these things that now we do that were never conceived of when the study began.
1: Which is, I mean, just the day, I can't even imagine. You know, you've got quantitative data and qualitative data because part of it is actual lab work, part of it is like observations and interviews. Yeah, Um, Which also means that you've got the interpretation, the perception, potential bias of all of these observers built into it over time as different people would rotate in also. So it's not just data about the individuals. To a certain extent, it's also data about the observers and the mode of observation.
0: Absolutely. And we're very aware, first of all, by reading some of the quaint notes about the families and some of the biases that are just so, such clear biases. But then also thinking about our own quaintness, our own biases, our own, you know, and and so one of the things we do is we make our data available to other researchers. We have collaborated with many, many different researchers. The idea being that Other people are going to ask questions of our data that we wouldn't think to ask. And other people hopefully will be free of some of our biases and look at, look at things differently. And we're going to archive these data so that, you know, 20, 50 years from now, people will be able to use these data when they have different lenses on.
1: Yeah. Is the intention now, because this has now gone on. Far longer than like Mr. Grant originally <laughs> looked oh, yeah. at and funded. So that you're, now you're multi-generations into this study. Um, it's got, you know, like government funding. Is there an end date to this or is the intention now to just keep it going?
0: You know, there may be an end date to this because we're thinking about how do we reach out to the third generation if the third generation includes people who are now toddlers mm. and people who are now in their late 50s. Like, how do you call that a generation, right? And so we're thinking there may be a time when we should make these data available clearly for future researchers, but we should hand the baton. And so that's what we're working on now. We're think, trying to think this through.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's got to be such a fascinating moment um, in this, this grand uh, multigenerational experiment.
2: Here's a cool fact.
1: If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash good project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash good project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Let's zoom the lens out a little bit. You know, so the original intention was can we identify people who would potentially be good for management for commercial purposes now it's much broader really understanding you know human development human flourishing um all that you know, like what makes us happy what allows us to live good lives fundamentally at the end of the day before we get to some of the things that you really tease out talk to me about some of the mythology about what people have thought in disha of a life well lived oh, yeah. that are largely like turning out to be mythology.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's still myths that we cling to. So, you know, the idea that being rich is going to make us happy, is going to make us feel like life is meaningful, turns out not to be true. And we study it, and we have good data, not just in our study, many studies, right? That making more money does not make you happier once you get your basic material needs met. So. I actually, a study recently said about seventy five thousand dollars a year annual household income is what you need, and that beyond that, you don't get much of a bump in happiness as you make more money. People are amazed at that. You know, young people starting out still say, "I got to be rich." Similarly, famous. I mean, think about all the people who are famous for being famous. All the emphasis on fame and and. Uh, glitz and presentation, it turns out that's, that doesn't make you happier. And in fact, fame sometimes makes you less happy, as it turns out, because you lose some of the freedoms you have when you're an anonymous person walking down the street. So as much as we think, oh, it's going to be great to be famous, turns out not to be true. And mm-hmm. then a third myth is, gee, if I work really hard and get all these awards, you know, and if I eventually win the Nobel Prize, that's gonna do it for me. Turns out that's not the case either. So yes, accomplishing things that are important to you that matters and that can lead to a sense of fulfillment. But the accolades, the awards, they don't really do it for most people. And the reason why it's important is that we keep getting these messages that that this is what will do it for us. And so part of why we wrote this book and part of uh, work these last. 10, 15 years has been to say, look, we do know what makes people happy. We know what makes people thrive. It's just not all those things in your
1: Instagram feed. Yeah. It's far more basic and and I was going to say less sexy, but actually depending on how you interpret it, <laughs> not entirely true. Um, but the notion of fame I'm fascinated by because that has become such a through line of pop culture and, you know, like, especially I think Gen Z millennials to a certain extent, but I can't even limit it to that anymore. You know, like I'm an Xer. No. I think every generation has been so powerfully influenced by a culture of fame and holding that up as like, this is the metric. This is what you aspire to. I remember it was a couple of years ago. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're, you, you, saw this it came out. There was a survey that asked, I think it was, it was college age, uh, students. Would you rather be president of Harvard University or J Lo's personal assistant? And there there were a whole bunch of other people like that yeah. were listed who you'd rather be. So J Lo's personal assistant came out number one. Um, <laughs> number two behind that, by the way, wasn't the Harvard um, like president. It was Jesus.
0: Oh. Well, so okay. people
1: chose like the like to be fame adjacent. <laughs> Instead of being the messiah, you know, like it, depending the, on <laughs> what your beliefs are. It's like and, and you're just looking at that and you're like, what is up with us?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's something about the, the idea that fame, that fame will rub off on us, that that um my Zen background has gotten me to look into this because I used to want to be famous. Uh, like when I was a kid, I definitely wanted to be famous. Then I realized. You know, nobody's going to care 50 years from now. Nobody's going to mm-hmm. remember almost any of us 100 years from now, right? It's just not going to happen. So why am I preoccupied with this? Why are why is everybody I know preoccupied? And in the Buddhist world, there's a, a line of thinking that says, look, you know, this self that I call Bob, there's really no kind of self we can find if we look for it. It's kind of ever-changing and it's kind of connected to everything else, Right. But that's scary. And one theory is that we try to be famous or we try to make a lot of money, you know, or achieve a lot as a way to kind of make ourselves feel more real. Mm. Like we really do exist and we really do matter and we're going to live on after we die.
1: And that's what came to me as you're describing that. And like part of it, I'm sure it makes sense that it, it, maybe it's a quest to feel more real in the moment, but also, you got to imagine part of it is a quest for immortality to a certain yeah. extent as well. Yeah, you know, if I'm famous enough, I will be remembered for you know like time immortal.
0: Yeah, and good luck with that, right? You know, because <laughs> <It's like, laughs> almost nobody is remembered. I can't name all the U.S. presidents. Lord knows no, can't I can't re- name the British monarchs.
1: No, I can't come close to any of those. Um, so money is interesting, also. You know, because for so long that was held up as the ultimate indicator of, you know, like quote success. Like that is what we aspire to. Like the good life is the moneyed life. And I've often wondered, well, you know, like what does money represent? Like that, that it would actually make us believe that because money's money. It's, you know, it's paper, it's, it's metal. It's empty. (laughs) Right. What is that a proxy for that makes us feel that, you know? So in my mind, I'm curious what your take is, you know, we're talking about things like security and status,
0: Yeah, you know, yeah.
1: and I can see like, there's, it's got to be so deeply ingrained in us as human beings to want both of those things. Going back to your Zen background, security, mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was an illusion, <laughs> yes, that's the ultimate.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, if we ever thought we could be finally secure, just think about COVID coming along and whacking us all upside the head, right? Like, you know, these things are coming along all the time that we can't control and often can't anticipate, but there is this longing for safety and security. And I think also status. And, and I do wonder, you know, to what extent were we programmed evolutionarily to want Hmm. status because status meant we'd survive and pass Hmm. on our genes. I don't know. I'm making this up now, but why do we care so much about status? Uh, But we do, and it comes up in me too, you know, Mr. Zen practitioner, I still feel that way and have to kind of see it for what it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it comes, there's all this um, research around, you know, comparison, you know, the research that you were talking about money and, you know, where, you know, people were asked, you know, would you rather make a hundred thousand dollars, but be surrounded by a community of people where all of your friends were making 150,000 or make seventy five, but know that everybody around you is making fifty. And most people chose, you know, like <laughs> to make less money, but know that they were making more than everybody around them.
0: And one of the things we know from research is that when we compare ourselves to other people more frequently during a given day, we're less happy. Mm. And so, what that comparison, which social media just begs us to do, right? right. That comparison leaves us less happy.
1: And if that is one of the fundamental sort of like uh through lines of social media, it's not hard to make that leap. That's <laughs> just sort of like the general state of humanity from an affect standpoint these days yeah, yeah, so these things like that we've held up for so long as like these these are the measures of success they're not it. Um, the study does however, not just leave you hanging. <laughs> Right. It points you pretty fiercely in one very specific direction.
0: Yeah. Take me there. So in the 1980s, we began to find, and many other studies began to find this crazy thing, which is that when we wanted to predict who was going to stay healthy, not just happy, but who was going to stay healthy as they went through life, it was the people who had warmer connections with other people. And at first, we didn't believe it. Like, you know, okay, we know the mind and body are connected, but how could the quality of your relationships actually get inside your body and make it less likely that you'll get coronary heart disease or less likely that you'll get arthritis or make you live longer? How could that possibly be? So we've been now studying the mechanisms by which this happens. But initially, we didn't believe it until many other research groups began to find the same thing. And now we know that, in fact, being socially isolated is really bad for our health and happiness, that being lonely, and one in three people will tell you on any given day that they feel lonely, being lonely is dangerous to our health. So what we find in our study is that relationships confer this amazing health benefit and happiness benefit, both. And that the people who were the the most connected were, it stayed sharper, their brains stayed sharper, and they were the healthiest as they went through life.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, it brings you back to sort of like what we were all told when we were like three years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like all the fun, the fundamental messages, you know, like on the, like the cutie little toddler posters that were like in a room, um, you know, it's sort of like, but everybody's looking for. Give me the technology, give me the pill, give me the app, give me like the breakthrough modality that is going to make me 10 times healthier, 10 times happier, 10 times more. We're constantly looking at things like this and saying, that's too easy.
0: I know. Yeah. (laughs) Except it's not. What you just mentioned were fixes. They were quick fixes. Give me the pill. Give me the hack, right? What we're talking about are practices, Our lifelong practices. Actually, one of the reasons why we called it social fitness in the book is we wanted it to, to be analogous with physical fitness. So if you think about it, you know, you go for a run or you go to the gym, you come home, you don't say to yourself, I'm done. I never have to do that again. You, everybody knows you know, we need to take care of our bodies. It's an ongoing practice. And what we find is that investing in our relationships, taking care of our relationships, building them, making them stronger, it's a practice. And that it involves little decisions you can make every day, every week, and that you want to keep making as you go through life. That's not easy. It's simple, but not easy. A lot like my meditation practice, simple, but not easy.
1: I'm with you there. Um, But it also, it requires a, cert- a buy-in to a certain value set, Yeah, you know, right? Because those things that we were talking about before, you know, like money, those other things that, you know, we work towards. So how many folks like step into adulthood? They say yes to a job because it, we feel like, okay, that's going to give us the security and the, the status and, and the money. And, and maybe they're in an early relationship. Then maybe they're not, maybe they're recently partnered. I'm thinking about myself, you know, like you make the assumption, Oh, that relationship will be there, whether it's with a romantic partner or like the, your old friends or like your, your chosen or family of origin. I feel like we take for granted the fact that these, these people and, and relationships will just be there when we need them and that they won't take a hit. They don't need anything. And that the more important thing is to go for the golden ring, which is money and status. And we don't realize, like you're saying, you know, there's no sideways in relationships.
0: Yeah. And what you're saying about we assume that our friends will always be there turns out not to be true then perfectly good, warm relationships will wither away and die of neglect. If we don't connect, if we don't reach out, if we don't see each other, if we don't call each other, right? And so suddenly people will turn around you know, in their 30s or 40s and say, I don't have any friends. I've fallen out of touch with my college friends, with my school friends, whatever. And so what we find is that the people who are better at maintaining these connections and making new ones are the people who really thrive. And this can happen at work as well. They've done some pretty good research now on whether you have a friend at work, right? You know this, and like one in three people will say they have a friend at work, meaning somebody you could talk to about your life, your personal life. Those people are so much more engaged in their jobs. They're better performers, they're happier, they're less likely to leave their jobs because they have something to look forward to every day in the personal realm when they go to work.
1: And circling back to the notion of a value shift, you know, like you've got to buy into the value that relationships are equally, if not more important than these other things I thought really matter because it takes effort. Oh, yeah. You've got like if you have a finite amount of emotional and cognitive and energetic bandwidth on any given day, you know, and I think most of us are already feeling like we don't have enough as it is. And then you've got to make a conscious decision that says, I am choosing to effectively invest less of that bandwidth in the pursuit of security and status and more of it in the deepening of relationships and the sustaining of these relationships. That's a tough call for a lot of people, I think, it is a tough
0: call. You know, there's an analogy that that I heard once that that just came to mind as you were saying that, which is that if you think of life as like, you know, a beaker and or this big container and that you've got some boulders to put in and you've got some smaller rocks and then you've got pebbles and then you've got sand. And the boulders are the things that you can't live your life without and the sand is the trivia, right? How do we make relationships one of those boulders that has to fit in first? Because what it means is that then everything else fits in around it. The smaller rocks, the sand, right? You know, how do we do that with relationships? When our guys were in their 80s, we asked them, look back on your life and tell us what you're proudest of and tell us what are your biggest regrets? The biggest regret that most people named was I didn't spend enough time with the people I cared about and I spent too much time at work. And the thing they were proudest of was to do with relationships. I raised good kids. I was a good friend. I was a good mentor, right? So this big boulder that we want, what we want to recognize as a centerpiece of our life needs to be these connections.
1: And we're trying to say yes to those in the context of that comparisonitis that we talked about where like, because if you say yes to that, you may end up having fantastic relationships that are deeply nourishing and then watching the people that graduated college with you or law school or grad school or whatever it may be, making a different choice, accumulating fabulous wealth you don't know what's happening inside of their household or in their relationships. So you make the assumption that not only are they like really successful and wealthy, they have equally good, you know, like relationships to me. So like, I'm not making the right call here.
0: Right, right. You know, there's that saying, you probably heard it. We're always comparing our insides to other people's outsides. So we look at other people and say, oh, they've got it all figured out. They're rich, they're famous, they've achieved a lot. But we don't know what's going on inside, exactly as you say. You know, I think that, that what we do know is that the people in our studies, so we have many life stories in the book. The names are disguised to protect the innocent, to protect privacy. But we have these stories of lives. And what you see is that the people who really were connected and prioritized those connections were just so much happier than many accomplished people who were miserable
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of like the huge value propositions for this body of work is it's a body of proof. Yeah, it's a body of evidence for anybody to look at and challenge their assumptions. Yeah, some of these people were like amongst the most privileged people in the world and successful and accomplished when you read their stories, and yet that wasn't it. (laughs) Right. You know, and you can look at this and say, "Huh, clearly, you know, like the mythology just it doesn't track." The available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So, why settle? Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation,
1: Code buttery exclusions apply. See site for details. You mentioned this this phrase um, social fitness, which you share in the book, and it really it does it introduces the idea of building social connections as a practice, as an ongoing thing. Take me a bit deeper into what this practice looks like.
0: Probably it starts with taking stock of what's in your life already, in your relationships and what you'd like some more of. So relationships provide us with all kinds of different things that we need. Like, you know, some relationships are fun, and we play together. Some relationships, you know, somebody comes over and loans us a tool to fix something. And some relationships are, you know, as we asked our men at one point, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Mm -hmm. Some relationships are the people who have your back and always will. And so The first step is to kind of take stock of who you have in your life and what they offer and what you give to them, hopefully. And then what might you want more of? And then think about, well, where might I be able to build those kinds of relationships or shift a current relationship so that I get some more some more fun or some more ability to confide in this person, whatever it might be, but really first taking stock and then Really being active in reaching out in changing the mix. So a friend you've always done one set of things with, see if that friend will do some different things with you. See if that romantic partner will go on a date and do something completely different with you than you've ever done before. You know, change it up. Um, so it's, it's activity. As we were saying, it's, it's activity in the service of uh having more of what nourishes you in these relationships it doesn't have to be in one relationship you know one of the myths that we sometimes have is that you know our romantic partner is supposed to give us everything so not true mm. and many people don't have romantic partners and you don't need a romantic partner to get these benefits you need some people in your life who are there for you They don't have to be people you live with. They don't, you don't have to have a marriage certificate. None of that.
1: Yeah. I think that's such an important point, also, right? Because talk about one of the other sort of mythological aspirations for, you know, like a good life. You check the box of like finding that perfect person. You know, this is your romantic, intimate person. You're like, you, you, it's love at first sight and then you stay together for life.
0: And you never need anything else because that person provides it all.
1: Right, that legendary phrase, like you complete me and I get like be on rare occasion. <laughs> but, rare, really rare. Right, like the research is pretty clear. Like what like yeah. you said, like we need people, like different types of people to play different roles in different contexts in different ways. And and the mythology is really like, limiting. So I'm glad you sort of like, you, you talked about that because it also, it's permission giving. It says like, there are so many different ways to solve for this. Absolutely, like, it doesn't mean that you have to have this one person or this one person. Like everyone has a unique circumstance, exactly. You know, and and that gives a lot of freedom and agency.
0: There's another myth that that's probably worth naming here, which is the myth that you've got to be an extrovert to get these benefits. Mm. So all of us, you know are somewhere between really shy introverts and party animal extroverts. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. And, you know, many of us have both shyness and extroversion as part of us. And so there's nothing wrong with being an introvert. Absolutely. Introverts are just people who need more alone time for refueling. And those people may just need one or two solid relationships in their lives. And that being with more people could be exhausting and stressful. On the other hand, extroverts really derive a lot of energy from being with more people. So I think it's worth naming that you can have good, solid relationships and be an introvert, be a shy person, not a problem.
1: Yeah. And it's not necessarily a volume game. And you talk about this as, you know, there's the frequency and the quality That, and these are these two sort of like features that you talk about when you're thinking about like the people that you might bring into the mix that would really make for a nourishing life. You know, volume wasn't a part of that equation. (laughs)
0: Right. Exactly. It isn't part of that equation that each person has to find that what the right number is for themselves. And of course, there's no absolute right number for anyone, but you know, what's the mix right now in your life that that seems to work for you in terms of numbers of people in your life.
1: You have an interesting exercise around this also. I think you call it the, um, the social universe experiment.
0: Well, it's a, it's a set of circles, concentric circles. And, and we ask people to make a little dot and write the name by it of a person who's, where are they in your universe? So many people choose to put the, their nearest and dearest in the inner circles And then some people put, you know, their more casual relationships in their outer circles. And it can really be helpful just to see, well, how many people are your nearest and dearest? And how many people do you have in those outer circles uh, who are more casual? And by the way, casual relationships are great for us and they matter. You know, the cashier at the grocery store who you say hi to and exchange some pleasant words with every week. That's a little hit of well being that you can give each other. The person who, you know, makes your coffee for you at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, you know, all that. Turns out the research shows that those casual ties, as they're called, matter and they're good for us. So not to be discounted.
1: I love that by the way. I I literally recently last week said, came back from grabbing lunch at this place where I've been like frequently going to pick up a salad. I had this big smile on my face. My wife's like, what's up? And I said, she knew my name. Uh, <laughs> like I yeah. walk in and she's like, oh, Jonathan, I'm like, here's your, here's your, like your salad. I'm like, it's the dopiest little thing, but it made me feel really good.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It does. And you can feel it. You can feel it viscerally in your body. Right. And so what it does say is that we're often happier talking to people who are kind of peripheral in our lives. So hmm. you might think about talking to the person who delivers your mail, you know, or, you know, just, just see what it's like to, to, to learn their name, you know, to, and what a pleasure when somebody learns your name as you pick up your salad. What a great thing.
1: I was surprised how sort of like um, delayed yeah. <laughs> I was by that passing moment. Part of what you're talking about here also is you're also kind of recognizing moments to reflect. Moments to take stock and it doesn't have to be this big, heavy, like sit down, deep, intense conversation or analytical thing. And this, I would imagine also, you know, this was reflected in the work from the study over so, so long from my understanding is every couple of years, participants would also get, um, I guess it was a questionnaire. Yes. That would basically, that was pretty in depth. And I wonder if there's data on not just what you got from those questionnaires, but the value of, That questionnaire as a mechanism for reflection to the people who got it.
0: Yes. We asked them. We literally asked the question on one of our questionnaires. What's it been like for you being part of this study? Has it Mm. affected your life? Some people said, no, it hasn't affected me. And some people said, your questions are annoying. And, (laughs) you know, it's been a bother mostly. But most people said, this has been really important because it gets me to take stock of where I am in my life. And otherwise, I wouldn't do that. It turns out that these, as you say, moments of reflection um, matter a lot in terms of getting us to stop and say, huh, here's where I am right now. Where would I like to go next? And that's what our people did and continue to do. We're actually uh, collecting data right now as we speak on the next generation. Yeah. I'm curious also, you know,
1: while... There's probably a lot of value in that for people because I, I don't think many of us create on our own periodic, recurring mechanisms to check in and just kind of say, How am I doing? You know, so on the one hand, it's probably really interesting and valuable to a lot of people. But I wonder if also it's a bit of a gut check. You know, it's sort of like, Huh, you know, I've been heads down cruising along, like doing this same kind of thinking, I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing, feeling the way I'm supposed to be feeling. This is life and now like doing like actually sitting here and being present and reflecting in a detailed way it's bringing up a, a reality that i'm actually not
0: happy about yes yes i mean think about what's happened during covid covid was this weird virus right we'd never heard of and suddenly it made us all think about our lives right we were we were locked down so many things changed and many of us started saying where where am i in my life and and what really matters there can be these unlikely times when brought up short and, and made to reflect on where we are. But we can also do that. I mean, I, you know, I can't send everybody a questionnaire and nobody would want me to, but there are ways we can do that for ourselves. And actually, part of what we do in the book is, is put these exercises in, hoping that people will use these as ways of reflecting on their lives and that they can come back to those same exercises over time. Would
1: you share one or two of those if they come to mind?
0: So we have a set of questions about where am I in my, what am I like in relationships? How, do I feel I can be myself? I can be authentic. Do I feel like I can be reciprocal, Can that I can give to other people in the way that they give to me? Sort of those kinds of reflective questions. So it's a, and the question is structured such that we ask you, how are you now? in relationships. So for example, can I be authentic? And then how would you like to be? What do you aspire to? And so what we do is we get them to rate we get people to rate how I am now and what I want for myself. And then you can look at the the gaps if there are gaps and you you can look at places where you're just where you want to be. And it's those kinds of reflections that might lead you to to do some things differently in your life.
1: I love that because I don't think we're given many tools for mm. that sort of inquiry. So I love the fact that there are all these exercises kind of built into your process and the book that we can kind of step into. Um, years back, I had a conversation actually with a friend out here who shared that after his, his first marriage, um, didn't last when he got remarried and really wanted it to stay alive and vibrant and connected. They created, he, he and his wife created these mechanisms they, they called life dinner. So once a month, They would go to a nice restaurant. They'd get a bottle of wine. They'd order a nice dinner. They would exchange gifts. Didn't have to be anything big. Just like something that said, "I was thinking about you." And they would just they would close the place down, talking about like how are we? Mm. How's how's life? Like how are you? How am I? Like like how is our life together? Like what's going off the rails? What's okay? And that monthly check in was like so powerful. Yet so few of us create mechanisms like that. And again, I I wonder if it's in in part because. We feel all already so pressed and maybe we don't value, we just assume the relationship's it's kind of on coast.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, what you're saying, we feel so pressed, and so we think to ourselves, please let just let that thing be okay and take care of itself. And right. so we say, please let let my relationship be all right. And so we we hope it will be, because so many other things want to drag us away and take our attention. And so I think what this is trying to do, what my, my work right now is trying to do is to say to people, no, really do this, you know, have the monthly dinner, have the weekly date night, just go for a walk once a week with your partner, um, just to make sure that you check in because these relationships don't just take care of themselves. They really need light and air and nurturing.
1: Yeah, no, that resonates so deeply. You know, you're using the word friend a lot and you also reference some of the, the, the questions and the exercise that you shared, which really spoke to this notion of being known beyond the superficial. Yeah. And you shared that like it actually, you know, like these loose relationships actually do add value. It, they quote count, but in the context of having friends, you know, I think a lot of us would probably say we have friends. But if you really said, do they really know you? A lot of us would probably say, not really. Yeah. And I wonder, like, whether there's a way to tease out the distinction between where you feel truly seen and known. Is that a different friend than sort of like the friend who, like, we may just kind of hang out with casually? Sure, we know each other. We kick around. We mountain bike. We whatever it is. Yeah. Is there a difference there?
0: There is a difference. And both are important. Like your mountain biking buddy is really important, right? But many of us, I think, you know, most of us want to be seen, want to feel like somebody in the world gets us. And if we're lucky, we have somebody who does maybe more than one. And maybe people who get us in different ways, you know, maybe somebody gets me as a worker, uh, in a different way than my wife gets me as her husband, you know, but, but I, I feel seen by a few people and what a blessing when I have that. I remember I didn't have that along for a long time growing up. And then actually it was getting into a good psychotherapy where I had a therapist who I felt, Oh my gosh, this person gets me. And it was like th- this experience of being seen was just so. Liberating, and we don't. You don't have to be in a psychotherapy to have that. There are these places and these people in our lives who can do that. But it's worth the. It's worth the search for people who can get you in that way.
1: But I mean, at that moment, and and by the way, like people can't see it, but like you were just smiling a lot when when you said that. There's like there was something embodied there. I wonder if if in that moment there was something in you that also said, "I'm gettable."
0: Yes often when we don't feel seen, we also feel like, oh, I'm kind of a, an aberration. Like nobody's quite like me. I'm kind of odd in these ways and no one's really going to get me. And then to, to have somebody get you it, for me has just, been, there. you can just feel this outpouring of gratitude. I mean, that's why you, you, you saw me smiling there because I was remembering mm-hmm. what it was like. So I think that it's one of those Wonderful, special experiences that we can have in relationships if we're lucky and if we keep working at it. Part of it also involves being vulnerable. I mean, you got to take the risk to share stuff, including sharing stuff you're not always proud of. You have to find people you can trust and people who won't be hurtful in any way as you do let yourself be vulnerable, and hopefully, people who can be vulnerable to you in return.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's that that whole notion. You know, you can't be known unless and until you allow yourself to be known, yeah. which can be really scary. Um, I, it's one of the reasons I love you know Arthur Aaron's work, which was popularizes the thirty six questions around sort of like developing intimacy, where it's you know this this these three sets of questions that start on a fairly superficial level, and then just you know the idea is is progressive mutual revelation. Which requires like each person to answer a set of questions, starting as strangers. And, you know, first fun topical. And then like by the end, it's like questions like like, have you ever had a premonition about how you're gonna die? Yeah. You know, like this kind of deep scary thing. Really
0: deep scary. Yeah.
1: And it's mute. It's like what you're describing. It's not one sided. You've got to step into a place of being like, This might land weird with this other person who I don't know, but I'm gonna go there. And, it, you know, like his lab found that these people, strangers running like on students, 45 minutes after this, you know, like intervention often reported feeling closer mm-hmm. to this former stranger than they were to people they had known for years. So I like the notion of being able to create experiences like that. Like, I love the idea of taking a modified version of that, inviting, you know, like eight friends over to dinners, you know, them all, but like, they don't know each other. And then have some sort of like version of something like that. So we can create mechanisms To bring this into people's lives.
0: Someone did this for me. I was in a group of people. We didn't really know each other at a dinner party. And they had this little deck of cards that the name of it was no small talk. Mm. And (laughs) you could volunteer to pick a card. And you would be the first person to answer this question. And then everyone would go around and do it. So I, (laughs) I jumped in, I volunteered. And the card was, how would your parents describe you? And so (laughs) immediately, right. So immediately with all these people I didn't know, right. right. Well, you know, yeah, they described me this way. And, uh, and that part was really hard because they didn't get these other aspects. You know, I could, I immediately started talking about things that were not superficial. It was a wonderful dinner. I remember it much more vividly than most of the dinners I have socially. So. I highly recommend this. I don't remember. I I actually have that deck sitting on my (laughs) bookshelf. They gave they gave us the deck, but I highly recommend some exercise like that.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. And you know, I think that that centers the idea of taking a risk with being known, being seen, being vulnerable. The other thing that really um, comes into and this is something that you talk and write about is the notion of attention, yeah, and and awareness and presence, which I think I think are sort of like is there such a thing as a three-sided coin? Um, but, you know, like it's one thing to be in a room with somebody physically there. So maybe you can be like, well, of course, you know, I'm committed to this relationship. Of course, you know, like I'm, I'm home for dinner every single day, you know, or I answer the phone every time you call, right? But if you're physically there, you know, but attentively, completely checked out, I almost wonder if that's more harmful than not being physically there at all
0: it is really hurtful to most people to get you know what we call continuous partial attention mm. and our screens do this a lot i mean sometimes right. my wife and i will go down for breakfast and she'll be on her email and i'll be on my phone and one of us will say something to the other and we're both half present right and then what i've learned is i have to stop i have to turn toward her i have to make eye contact get her to make eye contact with me and then then we can Connect, right? And so, you know, the, the, one of my Zen teachers is quoted as saying attention is the most basic form of love. Mm. And I think that's a really powerful statement because it's true that probably the greatest gift we have to give to another human being is our full undivided attention. And it's increasingly rare that we do that, which is a bit tragic. Yeah. But the flip side to me is and I
1: completely agree with everything. The flip side to me is that if you get intentional about regularly checking in, getting present and directing your attention at another being even just for a moment, like of acknowledgement, my sense and I'm curious what your take is on on this. My sense is that for all the reasons you just described, it has become so rare that when you do it, you know Different than it would have landed a generation ago, it lands as something even more precious, as something even more yeah. treasured and valuable.
0: Yeah, it does. It does because I think that it it opens the way to feeling seen by somebody else, and for them to see, you know, to, for them to see you, for you to see them, and that that is harder to get these days. Um, it was always a problem. We were always distractible creatures but i think that the digital revolution has exacerbated it
1: yeah i think it's one of these you know it's given and it's yeah it's it's allowed families or people who are spread across the world to be more regularly connected especially yeah. when, you know, this technology over the pandemic has actually gotten so much better to allow us to like like be visually and like see you know, like all the the nonverbal cues and stuff like this So, on the one hand, it's like, it's given something to us. Yeah. It's it's given us a capacity to connect more deeply um, with people who are not easily um, present, you know, like physically with us. Right. But yeah, but then it also, a different part of the technology takes the people who we can be physically presence with, present with, and almost like makes us distant from them.
0: (laughs) Yes. And that's what, you know, I, what I'm coming to these days is that screens aren't going away. Right but that what we need is to be really intentional about how we use those screens. Hmm. You know, like you you and I would never have met. We're using screens to meet, and you're very intentional about how you're structuring our conversation, which I'm grateful for because it's fun and it feels very connected, right? So that to me is a really good use of this technology. On the other hand, if I'm looking at somebody else's Instagram feed and comparing myself and coming away after 10 minutes feeling drained and feeling sadder, that's a use of technology that my hope is we can all start steering ourselves away from.
1: Right. And then coming back after that 10 minutes, maybe having been sitting across from somebody you actually claim to love for that entire 10 minutes and then coming back at a much like worse state that you yeah. present with them when you're all like grumbling and like annoyed and bothered and feeling less Then it's yeah we are weird beasts the way we are, I
0: mean. <laughs> we are weird
1: beasts one other thing i want to ask you about also is this notion of, I, th- I think we've talked a lot about like just the role and the importance and and certainly the size of the data set that you had that shows how how much this matters is big is the role of in the earlier in our conversation you were talking about the fact that we can now actually connect you know um Relationship, social connection to physiological causes and symptomology, illness, life-threatening, life-ending illness, and/or the lack thereof—you know—which literally changes our physical and mental well-being. There's also the notion of the role of social connection in when life gets hard, and that being one of the central reasons that it's so important. Like, and you have this incredible longitudinal data set where 80 years. With like all these different people, they're going to be like, I have to imagine thousands of moments across that data set where life got really, really hard, where there were challenges. And, you know, so the friendships play like, or family, they play a really important role in those moments.
0: They absolutely do. So our original people grew up during the Great Depression, one of the hardest times in this country, maybe in the world. Then the Harvard guys were of the age to go off to World War II. Many of them served in combat, saw their friends killed, all kinds of traumatic things happened. And when they were asked by the study, when they came home, what got you through these hard times, everybody to a person talked about their relationships. It was the people back home who wrote me letters who I knew cared about me. It was my fellow soldiers, it was my commanding officer. it was, you know, and so everybody cited other humans as what got them through mm-hmm. and I think this is still the case if we think about what gave us some measure of comfort and resilience through this pandemic through some of the scariest times, for most of us, it had to do with our connections with other people
1: so I'm going to float a question to you that I have been for some reason recently, like deeply curious about, when we think about emotions or experiences that connect us deeply with other people, especially with people who are previously strangers, or we may even felt like there was an othering between us. Often we talk about compassion as sort of like the linchpin. Like this is a thing, if we can cultivate that between us, we talk about love. We talk about shared aspirations, beliefs, visions, hopes, desires, There's something in my head that's become really curious about the experience of commiseration as a deeply emotional, often experience, which generally revolves around shared suffering and the power of that experience to connect us to other people more deeply than almost anything that I have looked at. I have no idea if there's any data on this, but I'm curious just on what your take is
0: on that. Well, commiseration, I think, is part of that whole realm of. Whether someone else gets me, right? Mm. So if I've, you know, if I've lost a loved one to cancer and I go to a bereavement group where other people can talk about, yeah, this is what it's like when I feel like a lot of people are just saying nice things, but they don't really get what it feels like. That commiseration can be so bonding and can make me feel seen, right? And so in that sense, it can be really good. There are also people who can exploit this in our culture yeah, and commiserate you know can, can <laughs> yeah. exploit our sense of victimhood and we're we're not going to take this anymore you know all that but used in the best way commiseration and compassion can really be quite bonding compassion mm. meaning to feel with you know i i get it i know what you're feeling it doesn't mean i can fix it it just means i'm there with you and i know how much this hurts yeah that
1: feeling of of i'm not alone yeah and imagine if you could also have that feeling of i'm not alone and that it's being generated to a certain extent in relation with somebody who before you realize you shared that experience View Viewed as somebody you would never want to be in relationship with.
0: Exactly. You may have seen, the, they do these experiments. Sometimes they, they'll show them on video where they pair people and they have them do a project together, something hard. Right. And then they share their personal stories after, and they realize they're people who would have hated each other, but they've bonded over this, over, over accomplishing this shared task and being proud of it. And that, that changes everything.
1: Yeah. So fascinating. You and I I think could go in a lot of different
0: directions. We could. We <laughs> could respect
1: for our time. And, and I think we've sort of like made the point of, you know, like massive data set, like decades and generations in the making. And clear as day, like people matter, you know? Mm. And all the distractions and the taunts of all the other things that we think matter and and the way that we're wired to like engage with technology and sometimes just disconnect from the human beings around us. I feel like we're in a moment of of both reckoning and reimagining. And um, are you hopeful?
0: Depends on the day. <laughs> sometimes I'm not hopeful, and sometimes I'm very hopeful. When, mm. uh, especially when I see the energy that younger people bring and the willingness to just hang in there and and forge ahead. And you know, I, I think the other thing that that studying these lives has helped with. Is the realization that I just don't know how things are going to come out. So, in my despairing moments, I can think the world is terrible. Everything is going to be ruined. Everything's going to be destroyed. It's all going to end badly. But I don't know that. And many people who thought, oh, my life is going nowhere. My relationships will never be good. Many of those people found happiness, found good relationships in their 60s, in their 70s, when they never dreamed it was going to be possible. So that's a long way of saying not knowing how life is going to turn out is one of the things that allows me to be hopeful.
1: Mm, love that. Good place for us to come full circle as well. So I always wrap these conversations with the same question half for a decade now. And I'm particularly curious what your answer is. And I have a sense I'm going to know what it is, um, or at least a piece of it. And the question is simply, um, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up?
0: Being engaged in things that you care about with people who you care about.
1: Mm. Thank you. (laughs) before you leave if you love this episode safe bet you will also love the last episode that we have just aired where I share a simple model for a really good life you'll find a link to that episode in the show notes Good Life Project is a part of the Acast Creator Network and of course if you haven't already done so please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app and if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable and chances are you did since you're still listening here Would you do me a personal favor, a seven-second favor, and share it? maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you wanna help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields. Signing off
0: for Good Life Project.